This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton City Council yesterday, frankly, as expected, uh, decided to adopt their own version of ward boundaries, uh, much to the chagrin of an awful lot of people that were at that meeting, much to the chagrin of the consultants who came back with a couple of recommendations and, and basically said that the city council uh, proposal just doesn't meet the needs of what the city needs right now. So what are the next steps? Well, uh, it's city council thinks all they have to do is endorse this and let's get on with life. I don't think it's going to be that easy. There are a number of people in this community, citizens groups, that are pretty ticked off with what's going on. Uh, Matt Jelly's been on the program before, of course. He's one of the people that has been driving the petition to get uh, somebody, hopefully the Ontario Municipal Board, to step in and do the right thing. Matt joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us an update. Matt, first of all, thanks for the time. I'm uh, so glad you could join us today. Uh, thank you, Bill, and thanks for uh, giving this issue the time it deserves. Uh, well, it deserves uh, to chat about these issues. It deserves so. deserves a lot of time. I saw some yeah. of the uh, social media comments, by the way. Some directed at you, some directed at the process, and I just want to remind everybody that uh, when the city of Hamilton, the new city of Hamilton, uh, was amalgamated in 2000, the province said, you guys have to do this. We're not going to do it now, but you need to do it within the next couple of years. That was 16 years ago. So this is not driven by Matt Jelly or anybody else. This is driven by the province of Ontario and basically at telling the city to do what every other municipality has already done. Yeah, this was long overdue, and um, I've had a couple, couple folks that have sort of... Uh, They've read the news reports and uh, somehow got the idea that I'm the, I'm responsible for the report. Um, you know, I asked council years ago to to look at this issue, and they you know have the option of hiring an outside consultant. But uh, considering what they did uh, pass yesterday, I don't think they needed to hire a consultant to uh, tell them to to uh, largely maintain the ward system as it is. They could have done that on their own without uh, the expense of three hundred thousand dollars. So, well, if anyone's mad about that, I you know I share that anger for sure. Well, I saw your Facebook post. Uh, yeah. Have you cooled off a little bit? Yeah, I've I've cooled off. Uh, if uh, listeners don't know what you're referring to, yesterday at City Hall, I uh, I had a little outburst at the meeting. And you were you were a little animated. I was a little animated, but uh, you know, at, uh, at the same time, I I don't apologize for the comments I made, and uh, you know, some councillors made a uh, suggestion that I be banned from. One councillor made a suggestion that I be banned from City Hall, but. Uh, Nobody took him up on that. So, uh, but I was I was really frustrated just to watch this process, uh, and I, I should be specific about you know why I was angry to that that level is uh, we've we've been following this issue for years. A lot of money's been spent, um, you know, and as I've said on the air before, it's uh, citizens have stepped forward in good faith to try and engage this process and uh, get the ball rolling on ward boundary review and. Um, you know, the, the, the entire process has taken so long, and uh, to have just a couple of lines tweaked by councillors uh, and have a $300,000 consultant report thrown in the trash, I, you know, unfortunately couldn't control my remarks, and I, uh, I said some things to council. Uh, but, you know, I've, uh, there's a code of conduct for city councillors that I rarely see enforced, uh, so the suggestion that a, some sort of a code of conduct should be applied to me as a, a private citizen is a bit ridiculous, so... But I'm more interested in the issue itself rather than, uh, you know, uh, the, the personalities involved at this point. Well, and you're not the only person that's, that's frustrated at this stage, too. I mean, we'll get into that in just a couple of minutes. Yep. You ever see these things on Facebook uh, where they, they show you two pictures and they say, can you see which, what's the difference? And it's usually some very, very small little detail. Right, yeah. Well, I was, looking at, at, <laughs> I was looking at the current system, the current ward boundaries, yep. and then I looked at city council's new edition of this, 
And boy, you've got to look hard to show any difference at all here. There, there's virtually nothing done. I, there is. I mean, they're, they're going to argue, oh, no, we moved this street over and everything. It's essentially the same thing. Right. And, and again, they set a number of, of principles for this review at the start, and the option that they passed yesterday fails uh, to live up to their own principles. Uh, Never mind uh, what the OMB uh, will look at uh, if this passes council next Wednesday, if this uh, new plan, if, it, if it's ratified by council, uh, there will be an OMB challenge to that. And, uh, you know, so it's, it goes against what the OMB is going to tell them. Uh, and it, it goes against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as well in terms of ensuring everyone uh, has uh, equal representation in our democracy, democracy, right? So council really, yesterday, they... they signed up for an indefensible position. Um, and, uh, and aside from just the money that they spent on this report that they've ignored, uh, now they're going to take that indefensible position. Uh, the consultants that they hired are not willing to, to uh, fight that position to the OMB. They, they recommended against it yesterday. So that means they're going to have to go ahead and hire uh, an outside lawyer to fight this case at the, uh, at the Ontario Municipal Board for them as well. So uh, council's spending a lot more money on this than they, they really need to. Um, back in November, they could have chosen an option that was presented to them by the consultants that uh, uh, I wouldn't have appealed, and I know uh, a lot of people would have been happy with one of those options, but unfortunately they, they've inserted themselves into this process. And uh, there were three options uh, before them yesterday even, and they chose the one with the least amount of change. Um, uh, personally, I prefer the 15 ward option that was presented to them back in November, which was the most uh, most equal in terms of population between wards, and that's the most important uh, part of this for me is uh, just to see that some wards don't have two to three times the representation as others. Uh, that's uh, just not a, a position that uh, I think we can continue, and it's it's not being defensible for the past 16 years either. But it's time to make that change. Well, there's a couple of things that I want to get into here. By the way, I want to read a, a quick email here just to, to indicate the level of frustration that I'm hearing from in this community when we talk about this issue here on the show, Matt. Yep. Uh, just got this a little while ago. It says, I was absolutely flabbergasted that our councillors would kick this particular can down the road yet again, knowing that a legal challenge is a sure bet. If they could legitimately claim that they believed maintaining the status quo with ward boundaries was the right thing to do, then perhaps I could have a modicum of respect for their decision, but it's abundantly clear that political expediency is the driving force here. That given, she goes on to write, I suggest that when the legal process has run its course and they are on the losing side, that the councillors personally, and not the poor taxpayer, foot the bill for this debacle. I'll be generous and suggest legal fees could even possibly come out of their personal ward slush funds. Signed, pissed off at being this council's political football. Uh, and I've received a lot of mail like this, and, and thank you for the email. And that just shows, I think, how upset people are with this process and the way the council is basically, and I think we used the term last time you joined us on the show, they've hijacked the process for their own benefit. Yeah, and, um, you know, the numbers that we're looking at here, too, we're talking about, um, you know, originally the report that they received in November was $270,000. They asked those consultants to go back and do more work. I'm still waiting back for the exact estimate, but, uh, you know, we can be assured that it's it's climbing up over $300,000 for that report. Uh, and in the background of all and, of and, this... And after all that work, they've just tossed it in the blue bin. Right, and we're in the middle of a budget season where some councillors are questioning the, uh, you know, the uh, 1.7 increase, uh, percent increase in the library budget. $500,000 is what the library is asking for, and that uh, is a big problem, apparently, but... 
they're willing to throw roughly the same amount of money down a rabbit hole uh, uh, for a ward boundary system that they know, you know, the, that can't be defended at the OMB. I even heard some councillors who voted for that yesterday. Uh, their, their position on this was very nuanced, saying, "Well, this is this is going to head to the OMB anyway, so um, you know, I'm going to vote with, vote for this option." and uh, but they they have a they have a a knowledge that this is going to head that way, so they could prevent it. I think by you know passing a ward boundary system that's uh, that's fair and equal between wards. Of course, they could get an appeal from the other direction of people who don't feel it should change. Um, but yeah, there were, they had an they did have plenty of time and plenty of options. Um, you know that would have satisfied my concerns and uh, a lot of other people's concerns. But they. They forfeited their ability to uh, to really affect this process, and the OMB will decide it at the end of the day. A couple of things here, because I know I heard some of the arguments again and some of the comments from the councillors yesterday, uh, you know, for trying to justify their vote, uh, that this is going to destroy communities. It's not. That was I, These are the same things we heard at Amalgamation back in the late 1990s. That it was going to destroy Ancaster, destroy Dundas, Stony Creek, Binbrook. Uh, and, and that kind of fear-mongering is, is jumping up here again, too. There's no evidence to suggest that. As a matter of fact, most of the, the recommendations, when you read the report from the consultants, uh, there's there's very little being done about those areas. It's really the inner-city eight wards that really need to, to have some fine-tuning done on them. Uh, and it's not destroying communities. It's not destroying neighborhoods at all. It's it's really it's a matter of fairness. And that that's an argument that seems to have been lost in this discussion. Right, and uh, the consultants were were very sensitive around um, you know protecting communities of interest. You know these were lengthy reports. It wasn't just one page that said make the wards equal. They really looked into this issue and um, and took the direction from council as well to to take all all of the considerations uh, and and formulate a report. Uh, I heard amazing hyperbole from some councillors yesterday about how any any change to the ward boundary uh, system. Uh, could destroy the rural way of life. Um, that uh, you know that it would mean that the rural parts of Hamilton don't have a voice, and that's just not true. Um, any of the options that council had before them from the consultants uh, still would have had rural representation. Uh, a little bit different. The lines would have been changed a little bit so that uh, those populations were were at least reasonably equal with urban wards. Um, and it would have been a, one, a reduction of one seat uh, from basically the, the rural western part of the city, and uh, one ward added to the mountain is sort of the most uh, acceptable option to me. Um, and to, so to say that that's going to destroy the rural way of life somehow is uh, is uh, beyond me. Um, and, and I also heard comments about how, uh, you know, Judy Partridge mentioned that the agricultural sector is, a, you know, a billion-dollar industry in Hamilton and and. That's, of course, um, worth noting, um, but it has no bearing on uh, democracy. It has no bearing on, uh, because, you know, the same argument could be applied. You could say downtown Hamilton is the employment center of the city, uh, has the highest density and highest uh, diversity in the city. You could make an argument that that downtown uh, deserves extra representation, but I've never made that argument. No one has. So, uh, I just, it's, um, I think I, I saw a lot of the, the councillors yesterday really grasping at straws for reasons not to, uh, uh, not, not to go ahead with a review. And, and, and actually what, you know, it makes me feel better about this, because if those are the best arguments that they have, I don't think this is going to survive at the Ontario Municipal Board. 
Well, there's, so a, there's a bit of hypocrisy here because I know that some of them, as you mentioned, Matt, tried to nuance their vote and by say, this really shouldn't be in, in front of us right now because there's a potential conflict here. Well, they don't seem to say those sorts of speeches when they talk about increasing their office budgets or giving themselves a salary increase. They're pretty comfortable with that. So right. I, 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 I don't buy that at all. There's a lot of these decisions that, um, again, it is a fair point to say that some of these things shouldn't be in the hands of council. I wish um, the province would have more oversight in terms of municipal governance um, when it comes to ward boundary realignments or it comes to things like ranked balloting. That uh, was something the province gave municipalities the ability to do, but there's not a single municipality in Ontario that went for it. It's another issue of incumbents have no interest in changing the system that led to them getting elected. So And re-elected um, and re-elected. Right, and so there's a lot of these things. I, I know there's sort of an attitude that you know municipalities should be a mature level of government and make their own decisions. And in a lot of cases, that's true uh, when it comes to planning and making and setting their own budgets and making priorities that way. Uh, but when it comes to the actual the way uh, the governing happens, um, uh, I think they're leaving decisions in the hands of people who have an absolute direct conflict of interest uh, in you know saving their own seat uh, they don't want things to change uh, so they I think the province really needs to take a more proactive role I heard that from councillors yesterday too I just wish I heard this discomfort at the start of the process to say you know this shouldn't be in our hands so we put it in the hands of a consultant <laughs> that was the idea but they they did come back with uh, their own ideas and their own options so uh, yeah, but know, that's why that argument, that Matt, that's why that argument doesn't hold water. Yeah. If if they had said right at the beginning we shouldn't be doing this, then you know, the answer would have been, well, hire a consultant to do all the work and come back with recommendations. Well, that's what they did. Yeah. And then I, they decided to take the process in, notwithstanding the fact that apparently they have some moral objection to this. It, when they didn't like what the consultant said, they simply said, okay, we'll do it then, we'll do it. And, and this, this BS that they've said, well, it was going to go to the OMB anyway, that's the same argument we heard when a few years ago when, you know, with this, this contentious issue about the Linwood-Charlton relocation that was coming yep. up. And they were told that if it goes to the OMB, you're going to lose and it's going to cost money, and they did it anyway, and they've sure done not, the same right. thing again. Yeah, and, and exactly. I see the same sort of pattern happen again and again where there's a difficult issue that council doesn't want to deal with for whatever reason. Um, that they empower either a citizens panel or a consultant or uh, citizens committees at City Hall to deal with issues. Um, at the end of the day, all of that still comes back to City Council. Um, so they sort of, they'll, they'll go through that process, which, uh, you know, thankfully for them takes lots of time and, uh, and delays everything. And then when it does come back to city council, they, they make all of that work redundant by making their own choice. And uh, that'd be one thing if they were just if that was their own time they were wasting, but it's it's everyone's time and money that they're wasting. And again, with this process with ward boundary review, um, they held two rounds of consultation, and you know I saw seniors that trudged out in the middle of a snowstorm to attend some of these meetings, um, and for no reason at this point. Well, you know what they, they want to better ideas, and this is in the hands of sixteen people instead of five hundred thousand. And therein lies the problem. I got about thirty seconds left here. But, you know, you want to start saving some tax money and reduce the budget. You, you may as well fire half the city staff and not hire any consultants because city council ultimately just says we don't need, we know more than these people. We'll make the ultimate decision. It's you know, just leave it to us. Right. Uh, and, and that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of scary. Yeah. Millions are wasted through that and unaccounted uh, millions are wasted through that kind of, uh, you know, disrespect, I think. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, a big an- transit announcement, of course, going on. Transport Minister Steve Del Duca is in town, uh, and uh, CHML's Ken Mann is uh, covering the story. And uh, first of all, we're going to get the mayor on in just a few minutes to talk about this. Uh, but let me get Ken Mann in here to talk about what the announcement is all about and uh, the impact it's going to have. Good morning, Ken. How are you doing today? I'm excellent, Bill. How are you today? Excellent. Well, the rumors were that uh, obviously we figured the James Street spur line was going to be off the books, and uh, they, we were told bus rapid transit up to the airport. Uh, but uh, that apparently that was only part of the announcement. Well, that, that is that is really the gist of the announcement today, the removal of the two-kilometer spur along uh, James Street North to be replaced by the 16-kilometer bus uh, rapid transit line that will run from uh, as you say, down around the waterfront, through the downtown, up the mountain, past Mohawk, and uh, along Upper James out to the airport. And uh, really, that's that's the big change today, is is making that switch within the project. Uh, nothing that's announced today affects the, the 11-kilometer LRT line, which will run from McMaster over to the Queenston traffic circle. So, so as expected, then, we get bus rapid transit. Now, have they already identified the route? Because I, I, the frustration that we had, obviously, Kenny, before was when they talked about the James Street spur line, uh, was that they had not done much in the way of research. And when they started doing the research, they said, that's not such a good idea. I hope they've covered their tracks here. Well, it's interesting because uh, when questioned about this, uh, uh, the Transportation Minister clearly made it sound like everything was still open for debate as far as this bus rapid transit line goes. Uh, However, there is a map that they've produced today showing that it will follow Upper James and uh, have a a jog around where Mohawk is to serve the college as well. Sounds like a plan. I know you've got a lot of work ahead of you, and I just wanted you to jump in for a couple of seconds here to let us know. Ken, thanks so much for this. We look forward to your reports. You're welcome, Bill. Ken Mann, of course, at the scene uh, with uh, Minister Steve Del Duca and Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who now joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us uh, their reaction. Mr. Mayor, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Just great. A little cold. <laughs> Freezing out I, there. Listen, I know yeah. it's about transit, but you know the, there are bus shelters. You could have done it in right. one of those. Well, they, you know, I didn't pick the spot, but they, <laughs> uh, they picked the coldest spot to do this out of the wireless one. But it's all good. We, we shall survive. Who said politics was easy? That's it. So, so your reaction to Mr. Del Duca's announcement today? Well, I, I, I really appreciate the fact that the province uh, has uh, realized that uh, reasonable flexibility has to be in the process. And they, uh, after Metrolinx and, uh, and uh, some of our city staff did an analysis, they, they determined that the, the announced spur line on James wasn't really the best value going forward and didn't have as much reach as uh, one would expect in a transit system. And they've uh, come forward with a plan that I think does much more. Uh, in, ter- in terms of public transportation from the waterfront all the way to the airport. And I think that's a, a positive development that many have asked uh, for a, uh, on council and certainly in the community for better transit service on the mountain and much more uh, enhanced service there. And that certainly delivers uh, in, in, in a very big way uh, on that objective. So uh, I think uh, I'm delighted to see that we can provide more service further and from the waterfront all the way to the airport, hopefully, that will uh, will improve public transportation and get us a long way towards fulfilling the blast network. And certainly this does that in a much bigger way than the 
short LRT spur on uh, on James. You know, I remember a discussion you and I had not too long after the initial announcement was made about the spur line on James, mm-hmm. and and at that time you expressed some concerns, not just about you know the the logistics of, but about the character of James Street, the way this has developed over the last number of years, yep. and how yeah you know a spur line sounds like a really good idea, but you don't want to destroy what James Street already has become. Well, exactly, and I think for those that uh, that have that concern, and I certainly have, uh, you know, it's uh, it's important that we don't unsettle what uh, what has been a, such a positive development uh, for the city of Hamilton and for uh, for downtown. So, this does that meets that objective. I think uh, the province, uh, you know, when they're in their in, in their ambition to uh, provide good funding announcements for the city of Hamilton uh, and and provide a billion dollars and make a connection to the go, and I understand that rationale. Uh, probably jumped out ahead of what really hadn't been evaluated uh, significantly enough uh, on the A-line for a uh, LRT spur there. So uh, sober second thought and, uh, you know, getting best best value for the dollar is uh, certainly a reasonable objective for the province and for the city. And I think this gets us a lot further down that road. Well, one of the elements that uh, when you look at, at the plan and the Master Transportation Plan, uh, the, the Rapid Ready Plan that uh, the Council adopted a couple of years ago, was to get enhanced bus service before you look at LRT. Now, I know the east-west is done, but the enhanced bus service was the B-line. That's been in play for years. But at some point, you were going to have to do this along Upper James. And the fact that the government stepped up and uh, writes a check for this has got to ease your conscience a little bit. Well, it's, uh, it just makes it uh, makes it better all overall for the entirety of the city for uh, for public transportation. I mean, we've said all along this is not just about a beeline in the lower city. This is about enhancing public tra- transportation everywhere. Uh, in the last two or three years, we've made significant improvements on mountain mountain transportation going uh, east west, uh, and this will make a significant improvement of mountain transportation going north south. And, and connecting the upper upper city uh, more significantly with the lower city, so uh, I think uh, I think that's a positive, and and we still have a billion dollars of uh, funding that the province has said is for Hamilton's public transportation. We'll do as much with that as we can. Mr. Mayor, how do you envision this this rolling out? Let's talk a little bit about the A line first of all that was yep. just announced today. Is is this going to be similar to B line service? In other words, more buses there, and so in other words, more frequent buses, and and, and obviously a, a quicker way to get from uh, north to south. Yes, and uh, and uh, you know, and, uh, and over time, as uh, as congestion happens, and, and Hamilton is not immune from congestion. Uh, whatever whatever you build today. Will will lock in a certain uh, drive time on the transit system that will uh, not be the same uh, on the on the kind of the roadways when uh, more cars and more congestion happen. So not not unlike the B line, which today uh, you know may may have a 30 minute runtime from uh, from from east to west, uh, that runtime will remain the same in the dedicated lane as congestion happens. So that's a, that's a longer term benefit, and and as you and I have agreed on many occasions. You know, this is not just about today. This is about the future of our city and and uh, the future growth of our city and the future benefits of public transportation in a growing and congesting city. So uh, that that's really kind of the vision that we're moving forward on, and that uh, that's that equal vision applies on the A line. So I I expect Bill that. Uh, in the lower city, it'll be express bus without any dedicated lanes, and then they will uh, then work on a dedicated lane up on the mountain. So far, proposed for Upper James, but I think the technical analysis has yet to be finalized. 
Yeah, because we had that discussion the other day. Uh, obviously, because of the, the heavy amount of uh, vehicular traffic that's already on Upper James, uh, yep. West Fifth could be an option. And, and I don't want to speculate where that's going right now because now we're getting right back into the same debate we had about the spur line. Some people suggested Bay Street. Some people suggested uh, James. Uh, do the math, and we'll, I guess we'll figure out when that's going to happen. I guess the good news about this, though, is is when you look at the cost of what's going to be happening with the LRT line, Mr. Mayor, and then you compare that with uh, the announcement today about enhanced bus service along Upper James, the infrastructure costs are, are significantly less. Right, and and so you, you, you can do more with uh, this kind of proposal in terms of uh, reach than you can with an LRT. You know, and the LRT, uh, you know, it doesn't diminish the fact that LRT, the, the reason that you're doing LRT is to improve transit service for sure, but to get the higher-order economic uplift that comes with a fixed-line system, uh, that's uh, that's a I think a given not only in Hamilton but throughout the world. And when you see that kind of economic uplift, especially in the lower city, that's a benefit for the city. That uh, that certainly improves our our revenue picture and creates uh, renewal and additional density. Uh, some of that also happens with BRT, but not to the same degree. And that's why we actually leapt forward on LRT in the lower city so significantly because the, it's older infrastructure that needs a higher order renewal. I know there are some that are suggesting that uh, you know there's not a whole lot of economic potential along Upper James because it seems to be maxed out. But I, I want you to comment on that because my feeling on that has always been that that connection up to the airport is because that's where the future employment lines are going to be. It's not necessarily what's going to happen along that route, although that'll help service people that are already working along there. But it's to get them up to where those employment lines are being developed up near the airport. Uh, absolutely true. And, you know, one of the complaints that we have for many uh, in our community with, uh, you know, some, some fabricating locations that are beyond their transit system is that transit doesn't get there. Some of the industrial parks up on uh, in Ancaster and the industrial parks mm-hmm. in Stony Creek. I mean, their argument is uh, we, we um, you know, they don't, they're not necessarily the highest wage employers. So they, you know, they're, they're better than minimum wage or living wage, but not necessarily at a wage that uh, would allow folks to, uh, you know, maybe own a car or, or at least they'd make a choice to not have a car because public transportation is more economically viable. So uh, we need to be able to get that reach. So we have identified in and around the airport uh, a significant employment district that uh, will roll out in the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years. And uh, so uh, having public transportation accessibility there is going to be very important for future employers employ, employers, and, fa- and, and company owners that uh, will want to make sure that they have good transportation so their employees can get there in a quick and easy way. So, uh, yeah, I think it fits very nicely with uh, the objectives in and around the airport and certainly having a transit connection directly to the airport more robustly than it is today is a, a positive benefit as well because we are continuing to work towards an, enhancing our passenger loading at the airport. So that kind of connection uh, makes perfect sense. There's another element to the meeting. Uh, as, as I'm looking at uh, the, the scrap, uh, the details that uh, Ken Mann just supplied to us, Mr. Mayor, uh, and and it's about the LRT line. And I don't want people to say, "Oh, they've changed it again." No, 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 no. I mean, it's it's still the Queenston Road to McMaster. But a, an important part of this today was the request for qualifications. Explain exactly what that is. That's an important step. Yeah, it's a, it's a really the beginning of uh, ultimately getting to a bidding process for uh, for the procurement of uh, of the B line. So I, I expect the B line will be separate from the A line. B-Line is moving forward. So an RFQ uh, request for qualifications for qualified bidders uh, that they can put in a, uh, you know, a proposal that, uh, that uh, will determine their qualifications to be able to 
build this kind of facility and to uh, to be able to finance and operate it uh, is the beginning of the kind of the next step which is then to take formal bids from all of those pre-qualified bidders so uh, it is really the beginning of the procurement process and uh, and I'm delighted to see that we're uh, moving forward on that and uh, the B line obviously is the 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 big enchilada in all of this uh, I I would expect and hope that uh, we can do as much or all of the A-line as proposed today out of that billion dollars. I think that's certainly what we would all hope and anticipate for. But uh, it is the beginning of, I think, enhancing our public transportation system through this RFQ, RFP process that uh, will not stop today. It'll, it'll go on for as long as Hamilton exists. So this, you know, this is not the beginning and the end of our transit system. This is the beginning of the beginning of an enhanced transit system. This is going to be an interesting process as it unfolds, the request for qualifications. Yep. Uh, because this is not just throwing a balloon up in the air and saying, hey, who's up there? Because there are a lot of companies right now that are very much into rapid transit and building rapid transit systems. And I'm talking on a global basis. Right. Uh, it's going to be rather interesting to see just who uh, who returns the phone call here and says, "Yeah, we want to talk." Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean these these systems, as you know, are built all over the world, and uh, there are many many companies with vast experience in this. Uh, Europe has obviously you can obviously expect has uh, many companies that uh, are well versed in how you uh, build, construct, and own and operate this kind of facility. So we anticipate worldwide interest in this. Uh, these are not small projects. Obviously, lots of money at stake and lots of. Uh, Employment. Now, you know, I'd have to say that this is still going to be local employment. That's one of the bigger benefits of LRT in Hamilton is that it's going to employ uh, thousands of people in the design and construction and uh, and building of this facility. That's a positive for Hamilton. Uh, You know, if if anyone came to us today and said, uh, we have a a company for you that's going to employ a a couple of thousand people for about 10 years or so, uh, we'd be all over it in a heartbeat. And so uh, that's exactly what's happening here. And then uh, after that, it'll be, uh, you know, employees to uh, to maintain and operate. And that's a positive step as well. This is a, a rather bizarre time. I mean, we're talking about obviously governments that are, are cash-strapped, both federal and provincial governments right now, uh, and certainly municipalities are as well. And And you would think that this would be the time that uh, that oftentimes senior levels of government would be turning off the tap. And uh, uh, to have the government with a dedicated billion dollars and a dedicated approach to transit, uh, especially here in the Hamilton area, is has got to be pretty gratifying. Well, it is. And it, I think it's also, uh, you know, based on an equation that, uh, that uh, you know, indicates that building more roads isn't necessarily the answer. It's also very expensive. And, you know, most people don't know and understand or appreciate the real cost of roads. And so I think the uh, the province has made the uh, made the determination that there is a, a not that they're going to stop investing in roads and repairing and replacing what we have, but that uh, going forward, the better investment that uh, will move more people more cost effectively is actually in public transportation. I think that's the same determination that uh, we're making here in the city of Hamilton. Doesn't mean we're ignoring roads. Doesn't mean we're chasing cars off the road. We're going to maintain and continue to build as as necessary but not have such a huge focus on the 403 and the 401 and all the major highways and spend more time and effort putting people into public transportation. That will minimize congestion, uh, provide better air quality, in fact, in most communities because they're electrified systems. And uh, I think the investment uh, really speaks to the future of uh, our communities in terms of how people uh, navigate and move around them, and I think public transportation is going to be a better bet. 
You got a rather troubling report the other day from staff about reduced ridership again on public transit mm-hmm. on HSR. Uh, and, and again, you know, we talked with Chad Collins about that yesterday on the program. Nobody seems to have any solid answers. I guess there's a, a lot of speculation about how this is happening. And it's not just a Hamilton problem. It's happening in, in most major cities across North America. Do these sorts of announcements, and especially the, the enhanced service along Upper James, do you think that's part of the solution here? I do. I mean, I think I think there are some definable reasons why it's happening. I mean, you can you can trace it back to the, you know the price of uh, price of gas. Quite frankly, I think it's a it's a pretty significant factor. And you know that happens. Uh, you know when car sales right when uh, when the price of gas is up, people buy smaller vehicles. I mean, it's traceable, it's trackable. You can you can measure it by you know the, the vehicles that are sold on each uh, each and every year. And uh, when the price of uh, price of uh, gas goes was I up and down? I can't remember which one I was at. When it's up. Uh, people buy smaller vehicles, more fuel-efficient vehicles. When the price of gas is down, uh, they go back to the suburbans and the uh, and the, the SUVs. So uh, the same effect happens in transit. I think when uh, when the, uh, the price of gas is down, uh, they're uh, they're more likely to take the car, and uh, when it's up, they're uh, they're you know they make a, a financial choice to uh, to take public transportation. And when you add to that the congestion issues, especially here in the in the uh, Toronto Hamilton corridor. Uh, you know, people are factoring in also the price of parking and all these other things that have to happen. So I think, uh, you know, when and, and surely gas prices are not likely to stay where they are, given that uh, oil reserves are not infinite, uh, that, uh, that an alternative choice is going to be electrification and electrified uh, systems and, uh, you know, a better cost scenario for people. And millennials today are not so anxious to purchase that car. And so, uh, you know, it's a major expense, and they're, uh, they feel that they're better off, they had better value in, in public transit. Uh, but that, that millennial effect is yet to happen. So I think, I think there's a, if we can provide predictable, uh, reliable, safe, and, uh, and frequent public transportation services that uh, goes to destinations that people uh, need access to, that uh, ridership will continue to increase. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about Donald Trump uh, and, and what happened specifically yesterday. I mean, in the last 24 hours, uh, we, we know this is Black History Month, of course, the month of February is. And uh, President Trump had a uh, kind of an offhand uh, conference yesterday uh, with his comments about Black History Month in, in a rather bizarre fashion. I just want to, before we bring our guest on, I want to just give you a little sampling of, of, of President Trump and Black History Month. Last month we celebrated the life of the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., whose incredible example is unique in American history. You read all about Dr. Martin Luther King uh, a week ago when uh, somebody said, I took the statue out of my office. And it turned out that that was fake news. <laughs> fake news. The statue is cherished. It's, it's one of the favorite things in the, and we have some good ones. We have Lincoln, and we have Jefferson, and we have Dr. Martin Luther King, and we have other, but they said the, uh, the statue, the bust of Dr. Martin Luther King was taken out of the office, and uh, it was uh, never even touched. So I think it was a disgrace, but that's the way the press is. Very unfortunate. Uh, what that has to do with Black History Month? Well, only the president can ascertain. And and it, by the way, the day got a little more surreal as as it went on too. Joining us to talk about this is Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. And uh, Laura, first and foremost, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. 
My pleasure. He never ceases to amaze. I'm exhausted. When are we on day 13? I mean, I had to, of course, to spend the last hour watching his speech to the National Prayer Breakfast, which was as bizarre as his speech yesterday on Black History Month. You know, between his speeches and his asides and his phone calls to foreign leaders and his executive orders, and it's just so much madness. Uh, and so on the Black History speech, you know, it wasn't just so disturbing that he, through his narcissistic lens, made it mostly about the persecution of himself, which was, of course, the lead in the Toronto Star article about it. But it was also the fact that you had all these black people around the table who were who seemed like courtiers in the court I mean, laughing at the king's terrible comments and jokes. It's very painful to watch. And, you know, it probably would have had headlines screaming around the world if there weren't 15 other things that took place in the last 24 hours. So, I mean, it really is so much, Bill, to, to filter through. And, and you, you don't want to get offended for offense sake, but he's sending some messages that uh, are just so unpresidential. It really is still stunning. Well, and in the, in the context of fake news, if I can use his own terminology, I mean, he started off his comments by saying, uh, and it's Black History Month, and, and, and by the way, you know, they said we weren't going to do much with the black vote. We, we did great with the black vote. You know, we're going to get even better. They got 8%. Uh, of the black vote, if, if that's what he considers great. I mean, I'm, but again, there he goes, just making numbers up and making facts up as he goes along to substantiate that. Uh, the comments about Martin Luther King are one thing, and then he went on. I, w- I want to ask you specifically about uh, his comments about Frederick Douglass, who he tripped over the name first of all, as if somebody had just written on a slip of paper and put it in front of him. Uh, but he seemed to be talking about him to Douglass in the present tense, as if he's yeah, still around. Like he- yeah, like he's, he's getting more and more, more and more accolades all the time. Get more and more popular. <laughs> it was the best line I saw in the whole thing was, you know, when you were in grade six and you had to write a book report, but you never read the book. <laughs> like, yeah. that was, those were Trump's comments. It was clear he didn't know really what he was talking about or who he was talking about. He didn't even really care about much except for explaining that, yes, it's true. There was some fake news, some incorrect reporting about the Martin Luther King bus being moved in the White House, and which was corrected quickly. But, you know, he wanted to make it all about, again, I won, but my haters lost. Here's one more chance for me to stick it to them. And apparently he's also doing that whole ratings and how much I won by Electoral College stuff, even on the phone with all the world leaders, or most of them. I mean, he just cannot stop at the prayer breakfast not an hour ago. He got on, and you know how he started the prayer breakfast, Bill? You were, you were doing your show, but he started it by saying, yeah, so, you know, I was on The Apprentice, and we were doing great, my ratings were awesome, and then this big movie star took over, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and his ratings are terrible. We should all pray for Arnold. And, you know, this is what he started the national prayer breakfast with. <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger has since put up a hate video back at him, throwing him shade. It's just so beneath the office of president, and he just can't stop himself. He'll have moments where he's reading from the prompter, even in the prayer breakfast this morning, that sounded like an evangelical wrote it for him, and then he goes off script and gets back to the narcissistic braggadocio nonsense. It was, it's really stunning stuff, but in the middle of all this just laughable stuff, Bill, there are some other messages. I mean, this morning at the prayer breakfast, he said that he's going to go after 
people sometimes viciously, and it ain't going to be pretty for a while. He's saying these words. Like, what was the last time the word viciously was used at a prayer breakfast? I mean, we have to. No, I, I think he used it in the, in the inauguration speech, but not at a prayer breakfast. At, at a prayer breakfast. He's, he's endorsing vicious tactics, right, in a conversation about going after terrorism, which, of course, has a subtext of him being open to torture again. This is in front of faith leaders from around the world. So what we're seeing from Trump is this consistent chaos. He will he will be off tone. He'll be off message about every three <laughs> every thirty seconds. He'll go on some kind of a rant or an aside about himself, and he is consistent in the sense that he believes that stirring chaos is the best way to run the world. He says, I'm going to essentially mess it up, but I'll straighten it out. I fix things, folks. That's my job. Again, it's the singular that, you know, he's the one to fix it, like we heard in his in his uh, address at his convention. So, I mean, uh, in, in the midst of all the stuff we can get outraged about, there are some, some pretty some pretty dark themes that are are consistent coming through all of these different communications from Trump. You know, we should have known, though. I mean, I'll go back and to the, to the Al Smith dinner, which, of course, was the, the huge fundraiser that all presidential candidates, usually a week before the election. And, and we, I think you came on the show just the day after that, Laura. Yeah. And we talked about that. And, and oftentimes the two main candidates uh, for the Democrats and the Republicans will throw little jabs at each other. But it's done in a sense of, of goodwill and satire. And and we thought Trump was starting off like that at that particular dinner. And it turned into a vile personal attack against Hillary Clinton. That yep. uh, that had people just kind of you know putting their head in their hands, thinking, "My God, this can't really be happening." But this is the way he's running as president now, too. I mean, this is the way his administration is doing. Yesterday, uh, he uh, threatened Mexico with military action, uh, in, you know, essentially saying he was going to send U.S. troops into Mexico. Uh, he's threatened war with Iran uh, because of their nuclear testing that's going on. Uh, he got into a shouting match with the Prime Minister of Australia and hung up on him. I mean, is this is this presidential? Well, he said this morning at the prayer breakfast, listen, folks, don't, because he said, you know, Rex Tillerson's here, he has good relationships around the world, and I said that's a good thing. And then, of course, there's the obvious elephant in the room about this guy who's literally trying to blow up relationships around the world. And so he said, of course, off off prompter, he goes, listen, folks, don't worry about these tough phone calls you hear that I'm having, you know. It's just business, you know. This is what I said I would do. I, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to straighten things out. So, I mean... What he is doing is is trying to craft a new world order. He said it, not maybe in such explicit terms, uh, not such daunting terms during the campaign, but it's America first, and that means shifting up all these other alliances. That means the rebalancing of power for many, many people around the world. That is deeply disconcerting because even if a president had great credentials and great history of service and great ethics were the one who was promoting that narrative, it would still be a shocking narrative. The fact that nobody knows what the heck he's going to do every 15 minutes is how often we have to check our phones to see what his latest pronouncement is. I mean, it is it is something that has just never happened before. And so uh, world leaders are trying to figure out, do we bully back? Do we appease? Do we skip meetings? Do we take them seriously? So, I mean, we really are watching chaos. And, and that is something that even the most cynical or the most close political watchers among us, Bill, are, are looking at and saying he can't even be contained within the moment. At that Al Smith dinner, he didn't get what he was supposed to be contained to or constrained to. He didn't do it this morning at the prayer breakfast, Black History Month. He didn't get it right because he really doesn't care. Beyond getting through the talking points his staff are shoving on the teleprompter or putting in his notes, after that, it's all about Trump's worldview and Bannon's worldview and, and playing tough and being the boss. So, I mean, we, we can get that much of a consistency, but the rest of it is deeply disconcerting.
Well, and and invariably, I mean, you hope, I guess, in situations like this, Laura, that the people around them uh, can not, if not necessarily instill a sense of propriety, but at least uh, try to steer them down that road. Because uh, I compared after Trump's thing yesterday with with Black History Month, I, I compared that obviously to Obama's speeches about it, but even going back to George W. Bush's statements about this, and 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 I won't think for a second that that George W. Bush crafted his own speeches. Actually, David Frum wrote an awful lot of them back in his first term, especially. But there was a sense of purpose to them. And even if he didn't like George W. Bush, the message was clear and it was singular. Uh, Trump, is it, he, he just seems to want to say whatever is on his mind, whatever pops into his head, whatever the consequences. But I'm not sure the people around him are any better. I mean, after his comments about, about Douglas yesterday, they asked Sean Spicer, his press secretary, about it. And, and Spicer essentially endorsed, said, yeah, as, as people find out more about what Douglas is doing, uh, Trump's going to talk about him more and make him more famous. The, the man's been dead for 150 years. Yeah, it's it's beyond painful, and and just as a short tangent, Spicer's daily press briefings have become like car crash TV. I can't miss them, and I mean Spicer yesterday mouthing that one of those the Skype reporters was hot to the room. I mean, there's just such a such a layer of ignorance and sexism coming out of this administration. It, it pops up everywhere. It's just gross, as we saw in the campaign. But to your point, I think if we I think if we um, fall into the belief that Trump is just totally stream of consciousness, making stuff up as he goes, I think we might be missing a darker narrative that does seem to be building. And that is that he has a, a message. His message is that I will dominate, America will by extension dominate, and if that disrupts the rest of the world because we are fighting against this global enemy, this war of civilizations, and so be it, because we're going to win this war of civilizations. I mean, I'm hearing that in everything he's doing. You know, when he brags about how well he does with the black people and he throws out, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that for them, there still is this reinforcing message of because of how great I did, because of how great I am. You know, all these fights he's picking with all these leaders is the same thing of I'm great, I'm going to make America great, and we are going to win this war of civilizations. And that war of civilizations narrative is is the same one that radicals use, you know, in, in radical Islamic thought, they, ISIS and those guys, they throw out this idea that it's the West against them, that it's civilization against civilization. And, and you've seen some of that in Steve Bannon and Breitbart and the, and the nationalist movement of the United States and the white supremacist. So, I mean, there is something that is consistent, and that's consistently disturbing. It's not just all haphazard kind of Trump just saying whatever he feels like. There is a reinforcing message of dominance and superiority uh, and an us-them narrative. And I think we saw that best articulated and most frighteningly in the Muslim ban. Except for, there's one one very, very blatant exception to, and I agree with what you're saying, but with one exception, uh, because you're absolutely right. Some people, the, the Trump supporters are going to look at that, that you know, animated phone call with the Prime Minister of Australia and say, well, it's talking tough with those guys. You know, we don't need uh, TPP and to, to hell with them. Uh, Iran, of course, yeah, you got to get tough. you got to, you know, stare these people down. Uh, so that's fine. So they're going to love their guy for doing that. But he is still silent on Russia who is ramping up military action in Ukraine right now. There's a serious concern that that thing is going to flare up once again. It already has, really. Uh, yet sh- Trump says nothing about anything that Putin or Russia does, which begs well, the so question once again, what's the relationship and why? Well, so there's two thoughts that I've certainly had on that, and I'm sure other commentators as well. One is that, you know, is there some sort of vested business interest or some sort of compromise on Trump possibly? Uh, the other thing, though, I think that seems more obvious is that this new world order may well involve a- a- allowing Russia to have its regional dominance as long as Trump has overall dominance. In other words, Trump will help them get rid of the United Nations and NATO. 
Trump will help destroy these international trade deals. Trump will give him back, you know, whatever was taken away from him in sanctions, as long as Russia doesn't bug Trump and Trump doesn't bug Russia. It's kind of like a, a strongman's agreement, if you will. It, it, uh, it's so Orwellian, Laura. This is 1984. We've divided the world up into three, and as long as you don't come across my territory, we're okay. Absolutely. And and further to Orwellian, and by the way, that book, 1984, is jumping off the shelves now because people want to look back at the predictive model. But also there's the the idea of the government speak, of the, you know, this the stuff that I watched a press conference with, with the press secretary two days ago where he was literally saying, you know, Trump, we never used, we didn't use the word ban. That's the media's word that, that Trump is just reflecting. And they're like, yeah, but you did. And they showed him example after example where he has said it and Trump has said it for the last week and a half. And so it's like they, they want us to unhear what we've heard. They want us to unsee what we've seen with those pictures of the inauguration. It is Orwellian. It's called gaslighting, where you make people question their own reality. So they buy your propaganda. It, you know, it's very disconcerting. And, and yes, you would hope that there were some people around Trump that would make, write his speeches and make his tone work better and make him more presidential. But you know what? All of that pageantry aside, it's more concerning what these consistent messages are in this new world order that they are bragging they are trying to achieve. But if Steve Bannon is pulling the strings like a lot of people have suggested these days, the guy from Breitbart, uh, he wants Trump to be this way. Absolutely. In fact, uh, they say Bannon is behind a lot of his aggression with the media. Just stick it right to him. Bannon called up the New York Times and said the media should shut their mouths. I mean, these are guys who absolutely go for the jugular. They're not a, they don't pussyfoot around in political correctness. It got them elected. It made Breitbart successful. And they're going to use that on the world stage. And the world is, is trying desperately to adjust to what that might mean. But, you know, one of the things with the Trump-Bannon relationship, I saw a brilliant tweet that was actually sent out in the fall that said, you know, it's not that Trump is using Twitter to manipulate, it's that Bannon is using Trump to manipulate, right? This idea that there are, you know, we used to think Karl Rove controlled George W. Bush. This, I think it's more, not so much Bannon maybe controlling Trump, but Bannon using Trump as a, as a mouthpiece and as a hammer for these more insidious narratives that have been building for a long time. I mean, the America First idea goes way back to the First World War. So it's not like this is something Bannon's making up, but they've now got their guy who, whether they're manipulating him directly or they're just letting him be himself, but they're, they're loving the effect that he's having towards their end. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.